0: This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Mostly What God Does, Reflections on Seeking and Finding His Love Everywhere. Written and narrated by number one New York Times best-selling author and broadcast journalist Savannah Guthrie. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks.
1: Welcome to the Grace Enough podcast. I am your host, Amber Cullum. This week, I sit down with Laura Acuna to discuss her 50-year journey with diet culture, overcoming shame, and the work she continues both personally and through her 31-day devotional Still Becoming, Hope, Help, and Healing for the Diet-Weary Soul. As we approach Lent, I want to invite you to join Laura's Linton study of Still Becoming. You can find the details by clicking the link in the show notes or by scrolling down where you're currently listening. I would love to meet you there.
2: Good afternoon, Laura, and welcome to the Grace Enough podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Let's go ahead and jump in today uh, because what we're talking about is something that is very prevalent In our Western culture. And that is this obsession with body image and weight and appearance and aging and all of those types of things. And so um, it's not uncommon for us to hear, and quite literally for myself, to say things like, I'm fat, I look awful in my clothes, I can't eat that, you know, all the things. And so I am assuming those are phrases that you have used throughout your teenage and adult life as well. So take us back and tell us a little bit about 11-year-old Laura and what started taking place in your life at that time.
3: Well, when I was 11 years old, I entered the seventh grade, five feet tall and 100 pounds. And by the time I left the ninth grade, I weighed well over 200 pounds. Mm -hmm. I went from probably a size five to a size 20 in the span of about a year and a half. And I describe it as a bomb going off in my life and everything changed.
2: Mm. What did go off in your life? What What do you think caused that to happen?
3: Boy, I asked myself and God that question for 50 years. I'm not kidding. I would just wow. beg him to tell me why. Why did this happen? How could this happen? And it really wasn't until, honestly, the past seven or eight years that I was really able to get some answers that have helped me heal. And what I can tell you, I can tell you what didn't happen. I can tell you what did happen. I can tell you that I was never abused physically, Mm -hmm. sexually in any way. I was not mistreated by my parents. I come from a very intact and loving family. My parents were married for um, 60 years. Mm -hmm. Uh, My grandparents were married that long as well. And, you know, they took us to church and we lived a nice life, but... What was going on in my life was high expectations mm-hmm. um, for academic and just life in general. There was um, stress in that way for for both my brother and I growing up. And I believe now, in fact I know now, ADD presents itself in girls in middle school, boys, elementary school, girls more in middle school. We didn't know about that back then. What we yeah. really knew about was hyperactivity which I didn't have. So I believe I had you know ADD, anxiety, and then depression that all mm-hmm. went untreated.
2: During that time, I'm assuming you probably started eating for comfort, for good feelings, bad feelings, all of the things. Is that correct in that assumption? Or am I think I correct? so, but
3: I you are correct, but I think what started it was a normal bodily change that happened during puberty. And in my household, everybody panicked. What was a small weight gain, oh. you know, everyone just panicked. Like what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And so um, the first thing that my mother did, which was what anyone knew to do back then. This was 1970. We know yeah. a lot more now. Right. But back then, you know, she took me to Weight Watchers, which was mm. another, quite honestly, traumatic moment. I can remember walking in the door and just being mortified that I had mm. to go to go to Weight Watchers. That's where all my mother's friends went. You know, right. that's not oh, where me yes. <laughs> you know, went, right? <laughs> yeah. And it was it was horrible, uh, really horrible, Um, even though my mom was truly trying to help me. I mean, she right. wasn't mad at me. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, and so now you're in weight. I mean, it just piles on. I'm sad to say that I think a lot of people totally understand how it slowly piles on these ideas that we have about body image, weight, what's expected of us. And so, what would you say were some of the formational things you started to believe about your appearance, your weight? Like, how do you feel like now as a you know, adult who's a little bit past that, but still dealing with some of the impacts of it. Um, how did it impact your brain?
3: Um, I would say that the shame was paralyzing and insidious. It just came over me like a wave. I, I can picture myself before being this little mm. girl who loved her body, who danced and twirled and jumped and played to look, suddenly viewing my body as my sworn enemy. It was working against me. I couldn't trust it anymore. It turned on me, you know, all of those things. And when you are piled with shame, when it's covering you, your thinking changes about everything, Mm -hmm. everything. And so I'd say that's the biggest change that happened instantly. Suddenly, I didn't even know who I was anymore. And on top of that, I will say physically, people didn't even recognize me. People who hadn't seen me in a year. So I had the reality of it, plus the internal stuff going on.
2: Oh, gosh, it's so tough because that year really did start a 50-year journey for you of yo-yo dieting and losing the weight and gaining the weight back. And, you know, what are my food habits? What are my I mean, all of the things that we all know about. And so how do you feel like that year and The next maybe five to 10 years of trying to figure out what was going on, how did that really impact the way that you viewed food, the way that you um, viewed how you were supposed to eat day to day? Uh, What were those thoughts? And just um, what was your daily diet like?
3: Well, my daily diet was I was either being good or I was being bad. I was either on Weight Watchers and eating what my back then my mother, you know, prepared food for me. And just incidentally, they didn't have all the diet foods they have now. So she literally would freeze bread and cut it sideways. You know what I mean? To make two pieces of bread out of one so that I would have, you know, one bread exchange or whatever they called them back then. But she, she worked hard to prepare all this food for me. Um, So I was either doing that or I was being very bad. So food went into two categories, good or bad. That Mm. was and, and then I can remember being a young teenager who was really social. I had a lot of friends. We get dropped off at the movies a lot and ice skating and things like that. Looking at those menus up on the wall at a pizza place or at the rink or whatever, and just having total chaos inside my head. Like, well, everybody's ordering the pizza, but I can't. But if I don't order the pizza, then I'm going to be different. And everybody's going to know I'm on a diet. But if I eat the pizza, they're all going to think I should be on a diet. I mean, you see this this mm-hmm. just chaos. It it was just like a, just a big ball of, I I think of a big ball of rubber bands that are just like snapping all the time, just chaos.
2: Yeah. And so you term that disordered thinking regarding Mm -hmm. food and eating habits. And so at what point do you feel like you began to sort through some of, this is not right. Or was that something that was always going on in your mind, yet you didn't really know how to get away from it?
3: Well, several things happened when I was in my early 40s um, I became women's ministry leader at my church and started providing women's Bible studies for lots and lots of women and I was in those Bible studies and um, one of the first ones um, was believing God by Beth Moore and that Bible study changed my life because basically she's asking I know you know I know you believe in God but do you believe him mm. and that hit me I'd known the Lord my whole life
2: yeah
3: I believed that that voice of shame was his. I believed he was colossally disappointed in me and he'd taken away the plan he had for me. And so that Bible study started opening my mind to the possibility that just maybe, just maybe he had something else to say. And that voice wasn't
2: his. Okay. Hold on. Pause. Because what you just said is you started believing that God took his plan away from you, but you're serving as a women's ministry director at your church. I want people to hear that because Number one, nobody has it all together. Number two, the enemy is always attacking every single insecurity that we have, and we often attribute it to the voice of God. But number three, and I want to hear this from you, is there is that tension that exists, I think, for everybody, and we are so scared to talk about it. Did you ever think about it that way? Like, here I am serving in this role, and I'm a fraud because I don't even believe that God's, you know, I feel like God's taken something from me that was mine. Did you ever feel that way?
3: Oh, yeah. Actually, I have a story about that. I didn't put it in the book. I would have loved to, but there was limited space. Our church sent us, our ministry team, to um, the American Association of Christian counselors conference in Nashville. They, have, they had a women's ministry track and they sent us. And I'm thinking, yeah, I've made it. You know, I'm on an airplane, I'm going to Nashville, I'm going to this big conference, I'm a women's ministry leader. And then I get there and I meet all these other women's ministry leaders and they all have master's degrees in theology and seminary. And I had flunked out of school, which was one of my uh, the consequences of gaining so much weight. I'd been a bright, gifted student and I started failing after I gained all that weight, which is another story all in itself. So I go to this conference feeling like a complete imposter. I meet all these women. Now I'm sure I'm an imposter and my heart is sinking the whole time I'm there. And they're handing out on the concourse, they're handing out uh, brochures for master's programs at Western Seminary and all these places. And I'm like, I don't even have a bachelor's degree. I I'm, I shouldn't even be doing what I'm doing. The last day of the conference, a woman gets up on the stage to do the last keynote. And she says, when she gets up, there's like, I don't know, several thousand people in a ballroom. And she says, you know, the Holy Spirit has something he wants me to say to someone out there. Is it okay if I say it? And everybody says, sure, sure. You know, And so she says, okay, I don't know who this is for. And then she goes, there's somebody out there who's been here for the past three days and their heart's been sinking because they don't have their degree and they feel like they're not qualified to be here. Hmm. Well, I'm here to tell you, sister, God doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. You belong here. You keep walking out in your calling.
2: And you knew it was for you.
3: It was for me. I bawled like a baby. My girlfriends were all over me. You know, they knew how I'd been feeling. And that set my foot on a trajectory where at age 50, I went back to school and finished my education. So, That's awesome. you know, God started working way back then and in incremental steps has been healing me of all of that.
2: But I still deal with that I still right. deal with that writing the book and every you know I have I have tools now though well and that's what I try to say to people and know myself and you likely know this about me just from the connections that we've had on social media and other places but I mean I have depression but it is not my sole identity it is something that I struggle with but over time over 20 years now of adding tools to you know my tool belt, there are just different ways that I know to keep moving forward and trusting the character of God over my feelings. And I think that's very true about body image and weight too, but it is a very long process.
3: It is. And replacing those lies with the truth from God's word and knowing his character, as you just said, is so important. Because when I doubt, I just say, does that sound like the God I know? Mm. You know, when I hear that shaming voice, does Mm. that sound like God? Of course not. But yeah. I wouldn't be able to do
2: that if I didn't know. Right. Well, and that's the thing. So many people maybe haven't experienced the same, the exact same thing you did where they had this swing of a hundred pounds. Maybe it's only five to 10 pounds, but they still, me included, wake up, look in the mirror and say, I'm not doing this anymore. Today's a new day. Only to wake up the next day and say, I look horrible. I can't fit in my clothes. Nobody wants me and on and on. I'm broken. My body's betraying me, all of the things. I need to starve myself, whatever that may be. And that is something that you write about in your devotional, Still Becoming, which we're going to chat about a little. Um, And so tell me when when you would get in that cycle again and again, and you talked about replacing lies with truth, are there any things In particular, or encouragement or just first steps for people who are like, oh my gosh, I totally relate to that, where you would encourage them to begin. I believe that until we rid
3: ourselves of the shame, it's hard to move forward. It's so Mm -hmm. debilitating. So we need to address that first. The first thing we want to do is starve ourselves and or go off carbs and be 10 pounds lighter in February. I began this time around, this this on this healing path, I began with the shame and replacing. What uh, the shamer says about me, you're broken, You're. it's too late, you're too far mm. gone, it'll never happen, blah, 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 with the truth from God's word, which is that he is always healing, he's always restoring, he's always repairing. I believed in the beginning of this that I'd have to give up my dream of, of getting to a weight where I would be comfortable. I no longer have a number in mind. Mm. I no longer weigh myself. I have a whole other re- th- bunch of stuff I do with in my toolbox. But I haven't given up that dream. I'm still working toward that. But Mm. the shame is the first thing that needs to go. The second thing is to reconnect with our bodies because for some of us, first of all, we have very black and white thinking about it all. And most of it is in the gray. That's right. So we have to get rid of that too. That's part of the shame. But also reconnecting with our body, that was a huge step for me. And one, I resisted every possible way I could. But beginning to trust your body again beginning to realize what a miraculous vessel it is Mm. and respecting it. And that's a whole process in itself. Listening to your hunger cues, letting them speak to you, believing them, Mm. reprogramming your mind that feeling starving is not a good thing. I used to love feeling starving because if I felt that feeling, it meant I was losing weight, I thought. But now I know starving is my body going, you better feed me and feed me now. Right. We never want to get there. We want to stay satiated. So it's a whole different rethinking, reprogramming, reframing, how we think about how we feed our bodies, how we
2: treat our bodies and how we view our bodies. Yeah, well, with the shame, even with that, I mean, I feel like sometimes it's easy to say I've got to get rid of the shame and then I don't even know the first step to take. Right. I think.
3: First of all, is to be in God's word every single day. I think doing word searches, you know, Google's a great thing. Just Google in, you know, um, what does the Bible say about beauty, about body, about redemption, all those things. But there's no replacement for a good Christian therapist. I know. It's so important. And that's part of my journey. I had yeah, an same. excellent therapist who specialized in trauma and women with disordered eating. And I had trauma I didn't even know about. Yeah. And we we dealt with that first. That and grief. Cause I had a lot of grief as well.
2: Mm. Yeah, that's a good uh reminder too, because part of really changing our thinking is taking those thoughts captive. And I know that can be so challenging, but even if it's memorizing the one scripture that is, you know, physical training is of some value. But it's is is, is yes. that the one that says it's a the fear of the Lord? Um I can't remember, but I have a few in my toolbox that I have to remind myself of over and over again. Like, this only has some value. This does not define me. You know, I mean, beauty is fleeting. Like, it is, and it's meant to be that way. And so we don't have to fight it so hard. Does that mean it's wrong to want to look beautiful and take care of yourself? No, but we obsess over staying young, and we're going to talk about that a
0: little bit too. (laughs) This episode is brought to you by the Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on The Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com.
2: You said you wrote Still Becoming to help women um, find freedom to experience it, you know, when it comes to this body shame and the yo-yo dieting and so on. And so I want to ask, why Still Becoming? And how do you feel like this devotional will help that diet-weary soul? Well, Still Becoming, to me, describes the Christian
3: journey. We we are constantly growing, changing, becoming more like Christ, the sanctification process. That's a big churchy word, but um, that's what still becoming means that I'm 64 years old. I have not arrived yet. I will not arrive yet until I'm in heaven with the Lord. I plan to keep growing, keep getting, um, seeking healing until the day I die. I want to serve him well. I want my children to say, mom never stopped. She never gave up. She was always seeking healing and growth and um, maturity in Christ. So um, those things are really important to me. And that's why I named the book Still Becoming, but also because it's a grace-filled journey. Mm-hmm. Dieting is harsh. It's so harsh. And just in the short time the book has been released and I've, you know, worked with my launch team and worked with women um, before as I was writing the book, I did, you know, do surveys and talk to my friends. And of course, my own, my own journey is that women want relief. Yeah. They just want relief. And so what I ask women to do is give up dieting for 31 days if they want to, because I believe in autonomy. I'm not telling anybody what to do. We've had enough of that. (laughs) It's an individual journey that you decide for yourself. So I'm making suggestions only based on my own experience. So I ask women to leave dieting for 31 days and try to just give God 31 days to speak to them about why why do you do this? How did you get here in the first place? How can I get out of this? How can I think of myself with self-compassion and God's grace? Because Mm -hmm. that is how he looks at us. He is not shaming us for not weighing 120 pounds. I promise you. (laughs) He's much more concerned with our spiritual growth and our development. And yes, we need to take care of our bodies. Absolutely.
2: It's all part of it. Yes. Well, and that's the thing too. There's this, you know, I hear people ask frequently, you know, But we do, we are supposed to take care of our physical bodies. And, you know, how do we do that? And I think there are times where restricting certain foods is needed for health reasons, allergies, you know, different things of that nature. And so do you have any encouragement for the woman who really just struggles with that? Like finding that balance between, I guess, what is the line? Right. Where is the line where you have crossed into disordered thinking, disordered eating about food versus this is something that is part of taking care of your body?
3: Okay. So what's worked for me, I can speak only for myself, is first of all, three square meals a day representing all food groups Mm. and two snacks if I need them. Sometimes Mm. I don't need them. So um, I don't restrict food groups, but some people have to. Absolutely. And, and that's not a failure. That's something you need to do. But I found that when I eat three square meals a day, I try to stay you know, under 2000 calories, probably around 1800, but I don't count. I don't measure. I don't, because for me, again, speaking right. for myself, it's an obsession. So God does not want us in bondage to anything. Yeah. That includes exercise. Yeah. That includes counting, measuring, obsessing. If I'm going to be satiated, I'm going to eat three square meals a day with snacks if I need them. And when I do that, I'm calm. I'm mm. completely calm. I'm not thinking about food because I'm full. I'm not stuffed. I'm not starving. And so then I can make good rational decisions yeah. about what I want to do. When I'm in a panic, I'm either going to try to starve myself or I'm going to stuff my face with potato chips. One or the other. There is no valor, that <laughs> You know, and I keep things out of the house, potato chips and peanut MMs, ms only because they, I can't, I can't handle it, but, but I can have cookies in my pantry. It doesn't bother me. I can have things for the rest of the family. It doesn't bother me, but I know what I shouldn't have around myself. That's all.
2: Well, and how often is it too, that we are just such in a habit of constantly talking about foods we can or can't eat and what we're eating and how we look and you know, what element of that is just not healthy. Correct. And again, when all food is
3: available, it's amazing what you don't eat. Hmm. It's amazing. I remember saying to my therapist around Thanksgiving time a couple of years ago, I said, you know, I feel like I need to eat a couple pieces of pumpkin pie this week because I'll never get it again, you know, till next year. And I love it so much. And I know I shouldn't, but I want to. And she said, back up, you can't have pumpkin pie in June. And I was like, well, I guess I could. She goes, you can't have it when you want. I said, I guess I could. She said, so if it's available to you whenever you want it, why do you have to eat three pieces right now? Mm. I'm like, good point. It changed my thinking.
2: Did I ever make a pumpkin pie in June? No. (laughs) I know. Well, and that idea of like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to start again on Monday. So I got to
0: get it all all in now. now.
2: Like, that's a destructive, that's disordered thinking because you don't have to start again Monday with only eating, well, what I call chicken and salad, (laughs) Yes, my husband's (laughs) always like you and your lettuce and chicken. I mean, that's not, not because that's what I eat. I do like it, but but I'm like, I just don't want to eat lettuce and chicken all the time.
3: (laughs) Right. And when you, when the emotional charge is gone from all the food that you have a choice from, you will listen to your body. You'll sit down at a restaurant and be like, what do I feel like today? I feel like the lettuce and the chicken.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean,
3: we all feel that way after Christmas. Give me lettuce and chicken. I There's know. nothing wrong with it because <laughs> your body's telling you that. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's you know, true. Yeah. It's rarely going
2: to tell you to eat loaded fries. Rare- rarely. It that is <laughs> true. That is true. And I feel like sometimes you can even watch kids who uh particularly like I remember when I was a teenager and I was an athlete. And I can remember how I would feel after a basketball game and I did crave carbs so heavily. And I mean I can look back now and see part of that is because I had just spent two and a half hours just sweating and using every ounce of sugar and energy that I had in my body, right? Exactly. Craving. Um, Okay. So tell me this, because sometimes food, unlike you said, you know, it is, it isn't just, um, a weight gain isn't just related to overeating. Sometimes it is trauma response. Sometimes it has a lot to do with, you know, abuse, infertility, um, and not just weight gain, but just the way that we view that our bodies are broken. You know, we can think something is wrong with me because I can't have a child or my image has changed because of an injury. Um, How do you encourage women to find rest, And healing by focusing on what God has called good. That's a big subject.
3: Um, One of the things that runs through my mind when I think about women and trauma, first of all, is that there is such excellent trauma care out there now, thanks to the recent wars that we've had, thanks to um, COVID. And so I would not fear going and getting specific trauma counseling from a Christian therapist. It is amazing um, the relief that you can receive from traumatic memory. It is amazing. Mm. Um, It's so different than talk therapy. There's actual techniques that therapists use that are so gentle and so kind, and yet will relieve you of the traumatic memory. You'll remember, but the emotional charge will be gone. Mm. So it's really important to get help for that and not give up until you find somebody really good. Mm. Um, The other thing is that again, You know, when we talk about beauty in this culture, we're leaving out a lot of people. We're leaving out women who can't possibly because of the way they were born um, with limitations, with disabilities, with, as Mm. you said, an accident or something, you know, where they can't possibly. um, Not that any of us can really, but, you know, I mean, really just takes them right out of the game. And it's not fair. It's not God. It's not how he made us um, at all. We are all valuable. We are all beautiful. He does not house his Holy Spirit in a slum dwelling. He put his Holy Spirit in th- these bodies, broken and imperfect as they are. Right. So that's, again, it's part of the reframing. We have to reject what the culture says. It's not yeah. easy. It's
2: really not. I know. And I mean, that is a loaded question we could probably spend the whole episode on, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. um just kind of wanted to get your insight there. Well, let's close with this when it comes to our cultures. And it, it, what you said just kind of plays right into it. Negative view of aging. I mean, oh my gosh, this is something I'm so passionate about. As, as Christians particularly, we so often resist this failing body. like, And we resist what culture is telling us that you've got to have pigmented hair. You've got to have big lips. You've got to have perky <laughs> boobs. You got to have skinny butt. You Like it's just toxic. And so speak to the Christian who they're fighting that right now. Um, They're fighting, giving in to the temptation of, I need to do all of these things to stay looking young. Um, Speak into them what God says about them as they get older.
3: Well, scriptures are full of words of, of wisdom for the for the aging. Um, I'm 64 years old. This is going to be my 65th year. I can't believe it. In my head, I'm 35. I'm just saying. I think um, that's what that happened. Changed. You just
2: stop. I'm 43 and I'm like... Sometimes I think, am I still in my thirties? Because <laughs> It'll stay that way. You'll, you'll be in your thirties for the rest of your life, but that's a good thing. I, I mean, know. You well, want... I can be so grumpy with my kids sometimes. And then other times I'm like breaking down, dancing in the kitchen and they're like, <laughs> mom, will you stop? And I'm like, what you don't know is that I was so cool when I was your age, you know? And they're like, it's not cool now. I'm like, it's always cool, honey. <laughs>
3: yeah. That still goes on. My kids are in their thirties and it's the same way even now, same way even now. Um, I would say first of all, I'm going to be really honest. I would take my eyes off of Christian celebrities. Amen. Um, I would. I, I'm not going to say any more than that, but it breaks my heart um, a lot because thinking of these uh, very high-profile Christian women who have access to all kinds of uh, beauty treatments, surgeries, hair extensions, clothing, and work personal trainers, and I think of the mom sitting in her small house with a bunch of babies who's gained weight after having the last one. And she can't possibly afford yeah. any of that. It just isn't right. And so I would take my eyes off Christian celebrities. They're wonderful for other reasons. I wouldn't take my beauty cues from anyone who um, I just would not. Yeah. there. And then the other thing is that I, I, we just have to acknowledge it's hard. I mean, yeah. it's hard to age yeah. from the beginning of time. Women have been objectified. And our beauty, we've been told, I mean, this isn't just our generation, my my mother, my grandmother, my great grandmother, they all, I mean, all the way back, they all fought their own battle with this. And we just have to reject it. We, we want to look our best. There's no doubt. I mean, we don't want to let ourselves go and, and, you know, do the, but, but there is a line, but again, between obsession and also believing that our worth comes from what we look like. I know it just can't be, it is no, you, you spoke of God's character earlier. It is not in his character to attach what we look like to our worth and not just our worth to him, our worth to the world, to People. Yeah. You know, and we just have to fight for it as, as an older person in the church, I will tell you too, there's a lot of value on youth, a lot of value on getting the, you know, and I'm starting to feel it a little bit and um, we need to be very mindful that our older people really actually do have wisdom and have a contribution. Mm-hmm. And as older people, older women in particular, we tend to pull ourselves back and disqualify ourselves because we think mm-hmm. nobody wants us anymore. So there's a lot of stuff around that. It's a big subject also.
2: Yeah. And it it's, it reminds me just a few weeks ago, I had a conversation with a friend who recently turned 50. And I she said, oh, no, once you get to this point, even I've seen a shift. I'm not getting asked to do as much as I used to be do. And I mean, she's a speaker for a fairly well-known organization. She's an author. She's serving in women's ministry. And I'm like, really? And we dove into that a little bit that obviously I won't share here, but I'm like, wow, even at 50, you know, so mm, I don't know. That's a tough one because you're like, yeah, we want to hear from all generations. We do. And I think that's another
3: whole subject. I'm pretty passionate about older people not complaining all the time at church. Right. and Right. You know, I so about change so, and everything. Exactly. We want you know, we want um, we want our church filled with young people. So and I right. want to be there. That's where I want to be. But I'm just saying it's a it's a big subject, but it's real. I yeah. mean, it's it's real. You know, Jan Silvius, who's one of the endorsers for my book and a longtime speaker and author said to me one time, I was 50 and um, I had just gone back to college. And I said, I I feel like I'm such a late, late bloomer, which I am. And she said, you don't have anything to say until you're 40. And then you don't have the time to say it until you're 50. So you got plenty of time (laughs) ahead of you. And I thought, oh, I'm hanging on to that. I love it. That's
2: a good one. Well, that's a good place to end, Laura. Thank you so much. Um, Still Becoming can be purchased anywhere. Um, Laura, what's your website? My website is laura-acunia.com. Wonderful. Go and check out Laura's work. And thank you so much for being here today. If this conversation resonated with you, will you share it with a friend?
1: And don't forget to check out Laura's Lenten study of Still Becoming. In the show notes. Thank you for listening to the Grace Enough Podcast. Tune in next time.